flexibility is also a very big thing. Um, you have to be willing and um, okay with some mistakes and addressing them and just being very upfront with how you're going to improve um, when you have partners you're doing these projects with, how uh, that's communicated to them. Um, so communication is really the biggest piece of being successful in field research. Swine. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry. One that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swinet Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like Adiseo provides programs and services to help producers achieve their targets in high-quality, safe, and sustainable way. Zinpro, essential trace minerals, exceptional performance. Ivonic, we are sciencing the global food challenge. AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Genesis, the first power in genetics. Gestal, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Hello, everyone. I'm Laura Greiner, your host for today's SwineNet podcast. And with me today, I have Dr. Brandy Burton with Suaday Animal Health. How are you today, Brandy? I am great, and I appreciate and am honored uh, for the invite today. Yeah, well, it's wonderful to have you on today. Um, maybe for our group, if you wouldn't mind giving us just a little bit of background about who you are and where you come from, I think that would be a great start to our conversation. Yeah, sure. So um, I kind of have a more unique background as far as how I got into the swine industry. I'm originally from the northwest suburbs of Chicago, um, so city girl, quote unquote. Um, grew up riding horses and did a lot of show jumping as a kid and uh, uh, continued that into my career as a, a college student and originally wanted to be an equine sports medicine veterinarian. So always had some aspirations to go into equine. And uh, that's what led me to the University of Illinois for undergraduate. Um, I got a degree in animal sciences there. And I kind of, uh, on a whim, joined the meat judging team my first year in college. And so that was an extra credit opportunity that turned into um, something that was life-changing. But that's really how I was introduced into the animal agriculture sector. Uh, really love the, that opportunity, that experience. And um, meat science and muscle biology is a, another interest of mine from that. Um, but I was able to surround myself with people um, who grew up with livestock and then uh, got opportunities to work with um, some friends on farms and also did some research um, on pigs through undergrad. Um, so after uh, undergrad, I went to the University of Illinois also for veterinary school. And um, during that time in the summers, there's a great opportunity through Iowa State um, called the SVET program or Swine Veterinary Internship Program. And I did that for two summers um, where you get to con uh, connect with um, those in the pharmaceutical industry, as well as production systems or veterinary clinics, and then per perform your own research. And so that's where I was introduced to mycoplasma research early on and the, the swine industry as a whole. And so through that, that opportunity, I really uh, enjoyed working with those in the swine industry. I liked the work of being a swine vet. It was a lot more than just health and medicine. And so that's where I kind of turned my career goals from equine to swine. Um, and so I graduated in 2019 from, from Illinois, and shortly after graduation, I moved to Northern Iowa, where I joined Sude Health and Production as an associate veterinarian with them. And so I service 
all of northern Iowa and southern Minnesota, and I dabbled a little bit in northeast Nebraska. And within the last year or so, my attention has really turned to more of the research side. So about 60 to 70% of my time today would be uh, doing research and doing more field-based research, um, but I still am able to connect with clients and provide veterinary services um, as well. So it keeps me uh, fresh in the, in the game. Uh, and then I have the great opportunity to work with students. So we have a lot of students that come through for externships. And then we also host students through that ESPIT program I mentioned. So a lot of fun uh, connecting with the, the younger crowd as well. This episode's sponsored highlight is about Evonik Animal Nutrition. Evonik stands for a holistic and sustainable value proposition for livestock production. It combines products and services and leverages digital solutions. This is all backed with high value consultancy and deep customer understanding. Evonik turns science-based efficient nutrition, sustainable healthy nutrition, and precision livestock farming into value for customers and consumers. Absolutely. And those are great programs. The SVET program is, is very good. Um, allows our vet students to have a chance to see some research, get the, the swine exposure, and some time with, with usually an external company beyond the veterinary practice that they're working with. So. Um, wonderful opportunities and interesting. I was the same way. I was uh, an equine interest that shifted to pigs when I came through school too. So it's always fun to see how people's careers have changed and, and the paths we take to get to where we're at today. Well, Randy, I really want to kind of jump into the, to the mycoplasma. I think that will be a really good start for us to just kind of hear a little bit more about what you've been doing um, with mycoplasma, particularly in field research? Yeah, so um, when I started practicing, um, I was having some conversations and we had a couple of clients who had endemic mycoplasma um, for some quite some time. And so um, brainstorming with Jason Kelly and a couple of the other vets, talking about stabilizing some of those gilts and some of those, those farms, they were running positive at the time. And one of the questions and, and kind of thought process that we had was about exposure methods. And so um, gold standard today, I'd say, is lung homogenate and, and fogging that to animals. So we were, you know, challenged ourselves, well, can we use something more anamortem? Do we have to euthanize these animals in order to expose others to this bug? And I had, from previous research experience as a student, taken several hundred, if not thousands, of tracheal samples um, as a student. And so we basically took that uh, technique and tested, um, did a little pilot study where um, we used tracheal samples, pooled them together, diluted it with freeze media, and then as a proof of concept, we just directly inoculated intratracheally. So just trying to prove whether or not this inoculant source will provide a live, um, enough live bugs to successfully expose these animals or these gilts to mycoplasma pneumoniae. And in that pilot study, uh, very successfully, we were able to do that. 100% um, of the gilts that we inoculated came back positive. And so that was kind of a, a shock, to be honest. We didn't know how it was going to work. And then from there, we really just uh, expanded on that. So we tested animals or gilts within that barn that were what we called contact animals, um, some, pen, some pen mates, um, some across the aisle. And we found that 95% of those gilts within three weeks were positive, um, just, you know, not the ones that weren't even exposed. So knowing 
mycoplasma, that's a little, you know, it was about one to four ratio as far as who was infected and, and the rest of the population. So that's a really, um, I'd say low ratio for, for mycoplasma are uh, not, we you know it's about 1.1. So um, it seemed to be a good source and also seemed to spread well. And so we expanded on that uh, study. Um, I received one of the BI award grants, so researching respiratory diseases. And that study was looking at finding a minimum dose for exposing gilts using this, this um, exact plan and protocol. And so that was also another successful um, trial that we did. And so from there, I have uh, successfully eliminated mycoplasma using that technique on three different commercial farms. And um, this past summer, we also expanded into looking at that inoculant source in a fogger. So one of our students last year was uh, Madison Durflinger from Iowa State, uh, actually performed this study and presented it at AASB. But she was able to successfully fog this, this diluted tracheal sample to a group of, of uh, gilts and barrows, and they were able to come back positive um, to mycoplasma. So very exciting stuff. The industry definitely doesn't want to be directly inoculating uh, these gilts and sows if we can avoid it. So fogging seems to be the you know more preferred way and why we went down that route. Um, but still some work to be done. It is still very preliminary, but um, some really exciting uh, results so far. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so just to kind of go back, you, you said a one in four. Was that so for every one pig that you purposefully infected, you had four that, that did not or that then later became exposed? Yeah. Is that the yep. ratio you're talking about? Okay. Yeah. So how about on the tracheal sampling size? How, you know, what's the inoculum size supposed to be, right? So are we... Mm -hmm. Do we take one scraping off of one animal and that will expose, in theory, 10 pigs or kind of what's that, that value that you're finding? Yeah. And so that's where the study looking at minimum dose um, was really trying to target finding that information. And it, it will be um, different per farm depending on how hot your mycoplasma is. So this farm that we use as our test farm, um, we could get tracheal samples, um, pull them by five. So I use a half cc of PBS to take that initial sample, pull it by five. And, and the CT value of that pooled sample is anywhere between 17 to 20 um, on some of these hotter farms. And then what we do is we take that and we pull about say six of those and, and then dilute that in two liters or more of freeze media. So it becomes a, a quite diluted sample. Um, and everything we do is, fi is, is finding the dose. We use CT values just because it's so hard to really quantify mycoplasma pneumonia with culture and growing it. So we use CT values to try to, to gauge where we want to be. Our inoculant ends up being anywhere between 25 to 30 CT value um, after it's diluted in freeze media. And then what I do is I use about 8 mils of that solution and intratracheally inoc inoculate the gilt. Okay. Perfect. Um, so another question there is the, the samples that you're taking, the tracheal samples, uh, do you, can you freeze those and then use them later for inoculation or do we have to do everything fresh with this procedure? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Something I should have mentioned is we take all of our samples when we're doing this and we actually freeze them in an ultra low. And so they are stored at negative 80 degrees Celsius from the time they're taken until we use them. 
when we go to prepare them for use, we thaw them and then we dilute it with the freeze media. So they're um, saved in the ultra low, only diluted one to one with freeze media. We thaw those, we dilute them further in about 2000 mils of, of freeze meter or how much ever solution you need. And then we will incubate, incubate that at 37 degrees overnight um, to help wake up the mycoplasma. It's kind of our theory. I'm not sure if it does a whole lot, but we will thaw it, incubate it, and then use it the next day. Okay, perfect. I think that's really helpful to the audience. And I'm sure if they have more questions, they can reach out to you directly and, and get some more information. Um, but I want to shift gears just a little bit because you're so heavily involved in field research and that's something that was a passion of mine for so many years. So I'm always curious to hear other things that you're doing. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I'm interested in is what are you doing in terms of antibiotic management and, and managing that nursery? Yeah. So that's a, a great um, area of interest right now. And we're, we're doing a few different things and it's kind of indirectly related to reducing antibiotic use. But one of my passions is just starting a pig off on the right foot and really um, doing all that we can to make these pigs as successful as possible. So one, uh, a couple of, a few studies I'll highlight, um, one that we've done, and that is evaluating their Nexteen product. And we, we sprayed it on feeders and we sprayed it on mats and waters um, for three times a day for three day span. And we also did, ran it through the water for 24 hours. And then we evaluated mortality and weight gain. Um, and, and throughout the nursery phase, and then also all the way to finishing, um, those, the data still being analyzed. But one thing that we're seeing so far is there seems to be a weight gain uh, difference in the pigs that received that treatment versus pigs that did not um, within that first week. And that was really the goal of that study is how can we better get these pigs to start on feed, um, to fill their bellies, and, and just be a little bit more active um, when, you know, during that high stress event. And um, these are, are these pigs that we use were duroxired, and so I think we could probably all agree they start a little harder, tend to have some gut challenges, and so um, we were really excited to see that that is a potential difference. So that would be, I guess, one way um, that we're trying to find ways to reduce the amount of antibiotics just by starting these pigs off better. And then the other kind of different uh, kind of study that we're doing is with uh, NutriQuest. And that's looking at um, a biomarker for inflammation. And so we're evaluating several different scenarios um, within a flow. So pre-PERS, post-PERS, um, around vaccination times, a lot of just different things. And we're, we're taking serum samples to evaluate biomarker levels and then comparing that um, with paired samples of weight at different times. And what we're seeing is that the pigs that have a low biomarker level at weaning, it can actually predict what their performance is going to be later on in finishing. So they tend to be lighter pigs and they have a higher mortality rate. And so one way we're trying to use this information to make an impact is what can we do to reduce inflammation around these high stress times in order to move the bar on, um, on performance. And so that can be related to health. If they're a healthier pig, they're going to be gaining more um, weight and they're not going to have as high mortality. So um, just a lot to do with starting these pigs and, and making them as successful as possible. Sure. Um, are you at privilege of saying what biomarker you're measuring or is that not published yet? Yep. So we're using serum vitamin A as the biomarker. Um, but 
the one thing you have to be with caution is, is when you talk about it that way, um, you can confuse it with supplementing vitamin A and that's not exact, that's not directly correlated. So um, just be, be careful with that information. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Are you is the bio or the binding protein that you're probably measuring in the serum, or is it directly vitamin? Serum vitamin A. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that's really interesting, and I think um, you know once we understand that the I think that the correlation between the inflammation marker that you're finding and the fact then that we have these higher mortalities is really intriguing, because especially what I heard you say is low biomarker, so in theory, low vitamin A um, could potentially have higher mortality later in the, the finisher. Is that correct? Did I hear you correctly? Yes. Yes. Yep. That is very correct. Um, some of the studies that we've done shows a, a pretty intriguing linear correlation um, with finishing weight, so pre-market weight. Um, and so it, it, and that's more obvious in health-challenged pigs, um, but that correlation is surely there in all these different trials. And groups that we've done. So it's um, definitely kind of a predictive marker and something to really gauge on, on where you're at as a herd to try to move the ball above what we call a critical threshold. So 0.15 is kind of the magic number we're using today. And as long as you're above that critical threshold, you're, you're okay. Um, but if you're certainly below that or you have a large percent of your population that's below that, you're, you're likely to uh, struggle a little bit through finishing. So how can we move the, and shift the population from a, a left curve to a right curve um, is the goal. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I think those are, those are great starting points, and you're absolutely right. You know, the thing that I used to preach was first three weeks, if I can get them going in the first three weeks, I don't really have to do much thereafter, right? So we know starting that pig is ever so critical and, and trying to understand what happens at weaning is, is very, very important. Um, yeah. I kind of want to switch gears on you again one more time, Brandy, but um, being involved in field research and being a veterinarian who's working on disease studies, maybe let's talk just a little bit about field research in general for you and some of the challenges that you see and then how you've overcome some of those challenges, particularly when you talk about disease evaluations? Yeah, one thing that um, us here at SUDE, we're very, very fortunate um, to have an awesome client base that's also very eager to learn and want to answer some of these questions. And so um, like the mycoplasma research that we were done was with the client on their farm. Um, and they understand that it's also going to better them for us to start evaluating these um, different techniques or procedures. And so we have some great clients that we partner with um, and are able to select flows that are highlighting the diseases that we're interested in and, and really find ones that will um, that are struggling in, in particular to what we're looking at so that we can find the best results um, possible. So we rely heavily on our clients and that relationship we have with them, that great understanding of what's going on in those flows. And then the other I don't know if you want to call it a great thing, but we are located right here in the heart of all the pigs. So northern Iowa, southern Minnesota uh, can help um, predict some challenges, if you will. Uh, for instance, we did a, a vaccine study where we were kind of expecting pigs to be laterally infected with PERS. Um, when you're in a certain area, uh, it, you're 
certainly able to predict that a little bit better than um, other areas. So we kind of use our geography and kind of what we expect within the region and then also uh, our clients and, and their flows and um, their, their willingness to participate. Any, any advice that you might give to other veterinarians or people that are interested in, in doing some disease evaluations that you've seen doing your own research? Yeah, I think it's just really jumping in there and, and kind of really going all in. Uh, we really haven't here at SUDE been doing this larger scale research um, for more than a year. So we're still really early in our infancy. And so it's kind of one of those things that you have to kind of jump in and, and tackle it. And it's a learning process. We're learning something new every day as far as data collection. Um, you know, good data is what you need to, to re really rely on. So the why and understanding and helping caretakers understand why they need to do all these extra steps, um, that piece of it cannot be overlooked. So really going through that step with all involved and, and explaining why we're doing extra work um, is what they'll perceive it as. Um, but once they get going, I've found that a lot of our caretakers, because they're just our commercial caretakers that have been helping with these studies, they want to know the results. They're invested in it too. And so once you start to appreciate as a group the, the goals, it's very rewarding. And so it's one of those things you just got to talk to people. We've talked a lot of protocols through before um, putting them on paper and we change them a lot. But once you get something you're, you're comfortable with, just do it, learn from it, and then the next time will be that much better. Absolutely. And I think you're absolutely right. I think sitting down, you have an objective, right? You know there's something you want to measure or something you want to evaluate, and you can draw out the prettiest study you, you ever could imagine. But um, if it's not practical in the barn, that's that's huge, right? So I think you're absolutely right by getting the caretaker involved early so that everybody's on the same page, you can nip those issues in the bud so that you know, you're not doing a phase change when it's not normally something they want to do or vaccine or, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And flexibility is also a very big thing. Um, you have to be willing and um, okay with some mistakes and addressing them and just being very upfront with how you're going to improve um, when you have partners you're doing these projects with, how uh, that's communicated to them. Um, so communication is really the biggest piece of being successful in field research. Absolutely. Absolutely. You had mentioned um, quality of data, good data versus bad data. And, and I would say that's something that commercial research or field research gets criticized for um, a lot. So any tips or tricks there on, on how to ensure that you're getting good data collection? Yeah, that is one piece um, that you kind of have to really keep on and, and do a lot of quality control measures throughout the process. Um, one thing that's helped us a lot is all of our projects are, are typically ran with the LEO system, which is individual animal tracking identification. And so um, we're able to really track a lot of information using the RFIDs and the Bluetooth scanners. And then we can also um, retain a lot of information with using tags, um, you know, with, with deads and, and different pieces of data collection that way. So there's just a lot of different check, uh, checks and balances throughout the process. Yeah. And I think it's important to make sure that it's easy for that caretaker too, right? That That's critical. And, and as you mentioned, you're using RFID tags. And so, yeah, that's easy, right? That's a wand over 
over it and, and it's done or a piece of paper, but ease is, is going to be critical in the barn. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, yeah. So I, I think you've really hit on some good things in terms of, of field research and some of the challenges. Um, just a couple of other things that have popped into my mind, really, when you were talking about the data collection and, and the field research process was um, just how do you go about picking out that facility? I know you talked about the fact that you have flow um, that has certain diseases, and that's always the kind of the starting point. But how do you get the buy-in from the producer? I mean, obviously they're invested because it's an issue, but you just told me you're going to come in and you're going to maybe weigh pigs, or you're going to you know need extra records, and the caretakers have things to do. So how do you get that complete buy-in from that producer? Mm-hmm. That's where the why comes in um, a lot of times. And once you get them on a, an understanding of all these extra steps that need to be taken, which it seems like a lot of work, and once they get going, they realize it's really, you know, maybe a few minutes of their time per day. It's not a lot. Um, but, um, yeah, it, it's we, we think of it as a collaboration with those producers. And we, we pick our spots based off of that relationship I spoke on earlier. So we have some clients where um, they want to be doing this kind of stuff. They like to be involved in this kind of stuff. They like being on the forefront of information and and being able to access that right away or being one of the first. And so we're able to really pick and choose those clients we work with. And then we want to, like I said, caretakers and that data is such a big, important piece that we're really particular about which sites we use based off of our history with those caretakers. So it's a lot of trust. Um, and, and that's where uh, knowing our clients and their sites and caretakers is a, a huge part of making this as, as successful as it's been. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think those are great pieces of advice for people out there who are wanting to, to either do more research or um, maybe improve some of, of the research that they're doing in their own barns today. Mm-hmm. Um, so as we kind of wrap up our, our time here, are there any key points that you want to bring back to the surface? I know we, we hit a bunch of things. We started with Myco and, and in, in, went into the nursery and then talked field research. But are there any key points that you'd like our, our people to take away today? Yeah, I think one thing I have really enjoyed and a lot of these things I've actually touched on today are projects, I think, that are more outside the box and going outside our comfort zone and kind of challenging the norm a little bit of, of what's done today. And I guess I encourage others to do the same and to continue down that thought process because there's just a lot of things I think we can make so much better by improving on uh, protocol procedures, things that are done today. And just by adding a little creativity uh, and innovation, we can just make such great strides in those different areas. And so um, I, I really enjoy thinking outside the box. I like kind of the weird ideas. And I think that that is really um, something that is rewarding and, and very uh, something I enjoy. And I think others would as well. If, if you're okay getting outside your comfort zone a little bit and can convince others to support you in those, in those efforts. Absolutely. That's how discoveries are made. That's mm-hmm. a very good takeaway. It is time to our famous three. Genesis is the largest independent producer of high, healthy, registered purebred swine on the globe, having over 80% of all registered purebred breeding stock in Canada. 
The Genesis genetic program uses genomic selection strategies focused on productivity, faster growth, efficiency, high yield, and meat quality. To know more, go to Genesis.com. That's G-E-N-E-S-U-S dot com. For knowledge and news from the global swine industry, access our partner, thepigsite.com. Well, Randy, as you know, we like to ask our guest speakers a couple of common questions across all of them, just to, again, give our listeners a little bit of, of different viewpoints on the same topics. So one of the things we like to ask is, what's your favorite swine resource? Yes. My favorite swine resource would be, um, as kind of a nerdy vet who does research, um, a lot of the journals. So JSHAP is a, is a great one. And some of the proceedings, one thing that's great about our industry is those who present their research and their findings and experiences at conferences are just, it's just great how much information we share with each other and how much we can learn from one another. So I, I a lot of times use conferences and those proceedings. And, and then at the same time, I, I like to leverage my network and try to reach out to those people um, when those who are a lot smarter than me and, and are more expertise in areas, um, really building on that network. And I'm not afraid to reach out when I have questions and, and want to um, learn more. Absolutely. Well, that's a great, great suggestion from a resource perspective. We haven't heard that one in a while. Most of our, our veterinarians that we've had on go to the diseases of swine. So I think Absolutely. The discussion around Jay Schaap and, and other scientific journals is very, very useful. Yeah. How about something that's not related to pigs? Is there anything that, that you're currently reading that you might suggest to the group? Yeah. One thing I really like, and I did a little bit of this as in uh, the end of vet school, was more on the personality traits and, and leadership skills. So I got to, to learn under the, um, the great Dr. Larry Ferkins. And one of the, the last things we did in our professional, professional development course was Clifton Strength. And there's actually a book called uh, Strength Finders 2.0. So it's an exam that kind of tells you what your strengths are. And then the book that supplements with each of those different strengths. And, and what I've found that I like a lot, especially in our industry, we work with just such a vast, major, you know, such a vast wide range of, of people veterinarians, those in industry for pharmaceutical companies or tech service industry, uh, caretakers, producers, farmers, I mean, everyone in between. And so really understanding your personality trait and how to work with others and, and their personality traits, I think has just been really um, enlightening. And I think is a, a really great way to, you know, increase communication efforts and, and just really be the, the best bet that I can be. So I've really enjoyed those kinds of, of books and resources. I think that's an excellent tie back to that conversation you had on communication mm -hmm. because there's yep. that frustration when, when people are in different personality styles can be very high and that inflicts on that communication ability. So I think you're absolutely right. When, whenever there's communication gaps or, or challenges, people should go back to two items like strength finders because mm -hmm. I have to flex a little bit to work with somebody and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Disc is another great one that we utilize a lot here at Suday. Our, our farm managers all go through disc and disc training. And so that's just another, yeah, great way to continue that leadership uh, program and, and education. Absolutely. Very good resource. Well, the last question we like to ask, Brandy, really comes back to just something personal in that 
if you can imagine somebody in your head who you've identified as successful in their life and you define success, we don't define success for you. Um, what's a key trait that you think they possess that has allowed them to become successful? Mm -hmm. I think really it comes down to passion. Um, truly not feeling like your work is work. Um, and I, I, I feel very fortunate to surround myself. I feel with people who I'd identify as successful because of that, they have turned their career into more of a lifestyle. It's not an inconvenience. It's not something they dread. Um, it's something that they really thrive on and it really motivates them to be a better person every day. And they're, they're doing it for the right reasons. They really want to, you know, just passionate about the industry as a whole versus their own self-success. So that's where I think the greatest successful people, um, I just think that you can see their passion just glowing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think you're on your way too. You're very passionate about what you're doing as well. So that's, that's wonderful. No, thank you. Well, Brady, um, I, I do want to thank you again for your time. It's been wonderful visiting with you. Um, for our audience again, this is Dr. Brandy Burton with Suaday Veterinary Service. Brandy, thank you again. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of nutrition on this online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding by Dr. Marcio Gonsalves and his world-class invited swine nutritionists. Additionally, you will enjoy an exclusive community to network and exchange ideas. Go now to EliteSwineNutritionist.com.